much greater than you've been told The sum of what your heart, your hands and your eyes can behold And every dream about to unfold in you What we waiting for Dinner dance may be something, something Young man in the morning though his life is nothing to ignore In a cabin by the lake With such a simple style he worm more than he could take And when the whistling angels gathered for your sake love was still the best action in time Such a simple style you were more than he could take And when the whistling angels gathered For your sake, love was still the best action in town Now where's that whistling coming from? Tomorrow again with the morning sun You is first, but you're still number one To this day, to this day, to this day. Oh, I love it. Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to the dulcet tones of Scott Barrett in the song Whistling Angels. I got a little semblance in there with Whistling Angels. And Scott Barrett just happens to be sitting, even though we don't have to do the social distancing now because we're both vaccinated and the positivity rate has come down on the Shabro stage right behind the Frederick Coffee Company and Cafe where Scott will be performing on Sunday morning from 10 until noon, June the 13th. Those of you who listen to this at a later date, you missed it. How you doing, Scott? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm just thrilled to be here. It's a perfect well, setting for a conversation like this and and you know like many other folks we haven't had the chance to have any kind of a lengthy conversation at least a year and a half this is going to be a lot of fun for me oh yeah me too me too i've you been know. very excited since you invited me well now that song is one of the songs off of your 
CD, is it 35 and something? 35 in a month of days. That's right. And uh, uh, 35 signifies the number of years it took me to write the songs. If, if they're <laughs> original, there's a couple of covers on that record. And then a month of days is about how long it took to record it over, a, I want to say, about a six-year span, maybe four or five days at a time, different locations, wherever my, my uh, producer friend... Uh, Dave Hutchison, wherever he was in his studio, that's where I would go. And it was uh, recorded in um, Central Lake Dist area of Minnesota, um, in northern Idaho, um, in Mexico, in Baja. Really? So, oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then finished up. It, it was actually pretty well finished up in, in Baja. Two, two cuts on that record, uh, Love's Implied and Fallen the Way I Feel were recorded in a little town called Pescadero, which is about um, 70 miles north of Cabo, where they lived. They had, my, my friend Dave and Sean, the, who did all that beautiful guitar work, um, he lives down there full-time, and Dave part-time uh, in this little town. You're the first person, well, I shouldn't say that. I have spoken to many people who've recorded CDs who have recorded in different locations, but it's usually Maryland, Boston, uh -huh. maybe Chicago, maybe L.A., maybe Florida, but nobody who's gone to Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So it's, hopefully I captured an international flavor. I don't, I don't know if... if uh, well, what you did capture, not only in that song, but some of the other ones, is, and I know you're a real entertainer, and you're a natural entertainer. There are people who, are, who entertain, who have learned how, they've learned the formula. You didn't have to learn the formula. You already had it in you, and that's why your performances are so popular and why so many people smile oh. when they come out of them. Well, thank you. But you have a lot of a, kind of a Latin, jazzy flavor in there. Yeah, I, I would say um, I love that kind of music. Um, I would say some, one of my uh, earliest um, influences was uh, Dan Hicks, and he... Uh, did uh, everything from Western swing style to Latin, haunting Latin uh, tunes and rhythms to jump blues and swing music. So he was a, a big influence on me. And um, so you would, a couple of, cut, uh, a couple of those songs, uh, Paradise Glen and maybe that last one, Whistling Angels, do have that sort of kind of a Latin vibe to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is interesting because you are now paired up as a duo, oftentimes, with Josh Baer, who's a jazz guitarist. And you two blend extremely nicely. Yes, thank and you. It, I would have thought in the beginning, because I had heard him solo, and he is, he's a true jazz mm -hmm. guitarist, plays extremely well solo, and I thought, well, this is, how's this going to work? It works really well. Yeah, he's uh, uh, just a complete 360-degree performer, and, and his interest in music are are boundless. He he loves Paul Simon and the Beatles as much as he does uh, Chick Corea and, mm -hmm. and uh, Pat Metheny. And um, he loves the old songs from the uh, old American songbook, which I do too. And I've gotten the opportunity to learn some of those. They're really not that hard of tunes for at least a, a, a rhythm guitar player to, to pick up. And then when you have somebody his caliber uh, playing, it's just, it's magical. And I find myself 
being part of the audience watching him play <laughs> and trying to remember that you're playing yeah guitar at the yeah same time. let's keep keep your mind on your business here and <laughs> get this song done and i should mention to those folks who will listen to this show prior to this weekend which is the 12th and 13th of june Scott and Josh and Barry Bryan will be playing at Elk Run Vineyards. That's right. From two to five. So come out. Well, it's uh, a good, good cross section of, of music. It will you'll hear it all. Some some swing and jazz and some Beatles and you name it. Now, has it been difficult or a little bit of a challenge to go back to do a solo show when you've had someone kind of supporting you? Yeah. Uh, I, enough that I know that I, I prefer playing with other people, mm -hmm. and um, I've, I've that goes back to when you and I yeah. did quite a few jobs together. That uh, there's a comfort level in not having to do everything yourself, and right. so I, I I like the the challenge of playing solo and do every once in a while. I, I, my plans um, is to dust off some songs that I haven't done uh, in the last three or four years because I've got this great opportunity to play on the Shabro stage on Sunday. So I'm going to probably play some stuff off the record and, and um, you know, some, some things that have been with me for a very long time that I don't play with, uh, you know, with Josh. So. Now, the, um, and I should mention to the folks listening who have not been to the Shabro stage or the Shabro Amphitheater, which however you want to, it is the cutest little stage in mid Mid-Atlantic region. Oh, yeah. It, it only seats about 40 or so, maybe 50, standing room only. Uh, maybe you can get up to 60. But it's just, just kind of like a nice upward slope to the seating and this nice little brick stage. Sound is terrific. You've got trees overhead, bushes, flowers, and you can walk about 75 feet to get any kind of coffee drink or sandwich or salad or dessert. And they're all, when Scott is playing on Sunday from 10 a.m. to noon, all of the gooey desserts are zero calorie. <laughs> That's right. Mike Winder, the owner, said he was going to do that just specifically for Scott's performance. <laughs> Any person who performs after that, it's right back yeah. to 4,000. Yeah, that's great. And do we mention there's free beer? Ah. Uh, <laughs> Come have, on out, folks. Yeah, have you been brewing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of free beer, brewing, things like that, do you still have the chickens? Oh, no, no, no. The no? chickens, no. Weasel got them. Really? Yeah, no, we don't. No chickens, but I might. I, I I've got a couple of chicken songs that I'll probably do on Sunday. Okay. Too, so. And how about the spuds? Oh yeah, we we've uh, our garden is is coming out of the ground with just abandon, reckless abandon. Now, sixty percent of it's weeds, but uh, <laughs> but we've got, you know, uh, and I'll have a very good crop of sweet potatoes. That was so funny when I think the first time you did that was at Kuzmal Theater for Tom Colehep's the last 50 right. or 100 years of music, <laughs> you brought that out as a, as, however you did it, that in the t-shirt was just a oh, classic. Well, you got to do something, you know, if you, if you uh, uh, are just average it at uh, playing and singing, uh, you might as well fill in with something that's a surprise. So. Well, and I mentioned that you're a true entertainer um, and it's in you, you didn't learn it. Is that the type of the things that you, you think about before you go on stage? Obviously, you have to have the prop with you. Is it something you go, oh, oh, we've got plain sweet potatoes. No, I'll take that I, with me. That's, uh, there are some moments for spontaneity, but um, I, I like to have the appearance of being spontaneous, but it, 
all these things are pretty well thought out. Are they? Yeah. And uh, sometimes they, they occur to me uh, in a dream or in the middle of the night uh, when I've you know, woken up. But uh, for the most part, um, the, that entertainment aspect really does come with a lot of years of experience. And, and um, I might have some instincts, but a lot of it's pretty well thought out. And because um, that was a role I had to, to play as a front man for the band I played in um, back in the late, mid to late 70s. Well, let's talk about that, not only specifically about that band and your role as the front guy, but how did music enter Scott Barrett's life originally? Yeah, I, um, well, some of it I, I remember, and then uh, uh, some of it was told to me, but uh, my mother told me at a very early age that I would uh, do uh, Elvis Presley uh, imitations in Sunday school <laughs> at age of four or five years old. And uh, so not only, uh, I guess, that, that kind of started the, that, that rolling, but it also, um, I think I became uh, pretty outraged uh, at uh, the reaction I got from the, meth uh, the other Methodists that, oh, this Barrett kid is, is going to be a problem. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that and then... Um, I guess uh, my, my, I have a, a deep affection for bluegrass music, and I think that probably was the first. And that was really cultivated by watching Flat and Scruggs on Beverly Hillbillies and watching uh, the Dillards on Andy Griffith and uh, later, you know, Bonnie and Clyde. And yeah. so that was a, a, a big influence on me. And then, um, of course, the Beatles came. I was about 11 years old when Ed, they were on Ed Sullivan. And that was a, a, a big influence on me. But I had already was enamored with the Beach Boys and Jan mm -hmm. and Dean and, and all those wonderful harmonies and the, and the, uh, the rhythms and uh, the humor. It, I mean, if you listen to some Jan and Dean tunes, they're, they're, they're crazy, <laughs> absolutely crazy. So um, anyway, that, uh, but at the same time, as I was uh, enjoying those groups and as the 60s went on, uh, the Birds and Mamas and the Papas and, and groups like that, uh, I was listening to my dad's big band records as much as I was listening to anything. Yeah. The Dorsey Brothers, Glenn Miller. So swing music has always been in my soul. Um, I just didn't. It just it never came out of me until um, college, I guess. And I, but that's uh, so. Those are the main influences, you know, the rock and roll and everything like that. Followed. So, so when did you pick up a guitar? I got my first guitar, as a matter of fact, for Christmas um, in 1964. Sometime, I guess, after the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. And uh, I, I picked it out of a Sears catalog. I think I very uh, <laughs> dog-eared the page, you know, and uh, maybe drew a big arrow to, to this. Uh, it was a Silvertone uh, black F-hole guitar. It was acoustic, but it looked like George Harrison's guitar. So I, you know, um, let it be known that, you know, if Santa Claus was going to make it around to 
Claremont, California, he could drop one of these down our chimney. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and that's that's what happened. And oh, it was. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, but. Uh, well, had you played guitar before that? No, no, no. So it was. No, and I uh, literally like the like the uh, Brian Adams tune. I I played until my fingers bled. Yeah. I instinctively played left-handed. You did. Yeah, instinctively. I I I do many things left-handed, and before I had my first lesson, and I would just slam around on it, and I made my knuckles on my left hand get raw. Wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, my mom got me some lessons, and so. Uh, as was the custom back in those days, uh, uh, the teacher turned the thing around on me, and uh, so there would be no left-handed playing in his studio. So um, anyway, it worked out pretty good. I, I, I feel like uh, there's certain things that um, I like about my playing almost because of having uh, like a percussive left hand or something. So Now, have you, in your guitar playing years have you ever tried to reach it around and play it the other way no 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 it was uh it was definitely to be played that way you yeah. know you learn the chords for a right-hander and uh you know i got we have a mutual friend casey cleveland who plays yeah. le left-handed and he does has taught himself how to play a d and in you know backwards right uh, uh so Anyway, the um, T. Edwin Doss had me install some pickups in his guitars, and once I put the pickup in, I want to find out if it's working. Of course, sure. Well, it's a left-handed guitar, and I sort of was able to figure out how to play it in the right-handed way, upside down. But it takes a while to force your fingers into those, and so what I did is I would turn it to the right way, which would be the left-handed uh -huh. way. And that was more difficult because my right hand is not used to fingering. I mean, it's not used to making chords. So now, do you write left-handed? Yes. Okay. So uh, you're a true, a true lefty, basically. Well, actually, I'm uh, ambidextrous, or I'm confused, or, or I do many things <laughs> left-handed. We've known you've been confused for a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I eat and write left-handed, and I throw a baseball right-handed, uh, and uh, I guess I bat both ways when I was in Little League, but uh, yeah, it's kind of mixed up, but I think probably dominant left-handed. Yeah. Now, did it take you longer to learn to play guitar since you were being forced to be upside down in your natural way? No, I, I, it took me a long time to learn because I was lazy. Ah. So, the, the my formative years, um, you, know, you know, my car and g girls were more important than my my craft <laughs> my uh, guitar playing uh, that the guitar playing really kind of took off when i got in college and i was surrounded by in my dormitory where, where i went went to school surrounded by really good musicians who taught me a lot and um you know that, that's probably where the guitar playing really i didn't know much more than three or four chords uh, from the time I got my first guitar at 11 till I was 18. Now, where did you go to school? It, for college? Yes. Uh, I went uh, to a little tiny Presbyterian school called Whitworth. Whitworth College. It's a university now. It's in Spokane, Washington. And uh, so I stayed on the, the West Coast. I was born and raised in 
Southern California and then went to college in, in uh, Spokane and it was a tremendous tremendous experience uh, all the way around for me but in particular kind of shaped me as far as how uh, music had been part part of my life since then now in college playing with all those people did you end up performing at all or was it purely just jam sessions at the dorm room yeah uh, it, a lot of that but uh, we had a, a real nice um, uh, atmosphere at that school for performing, uh, even if you weren't very good. We had uh, talent shows. We had this, uh, the dormitory I lived in was McMillan Hall, and they had McMillan Hall in concert. And, and so faculty and students alike would, would perform. And you can't, you can't have a better gig to, when you're starting out to play in front of all your friends, you know, yeah. in a, uh, we had a, uh, an auditorium that boasted of being acoustically perfect. So, uh, you know, all those conditions were, were, were wonderful and people were screaming at, at the stupid song you might play. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's really what it, what it's about. That gets under your skin and you want more of that yeah. and you want more. And, uh, so it turned out that they would have a uh, 50s night in the in our uh, student union building and so we'd learn a couple of you know rockabilly yeah or rock something. yeah something like that uh, and again the screaming <laughs> 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 and uh, so yeah it was a really great great atmosphere and and uh, kind of pulled me along for now, sure now did you begin to realize at that point in time or maybe it didn't for you so many people when I ask them why did you learn guitar they say well I realized that the guitar player always got the girl so I learned guitar to get the girl but I didn't get the girl <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it, it was uh, I think it was more about feeding that thrill of performing um, I'm basically an introverted person I uh, maybe don't seem that way but I've, I've taken those personality tests the Myers-Briggs yeah. and, and I do I tend to be fairly much on the introverted scale. So uh, performing for me is uh, better now, but back in those days, uh, it was like jumping out of an airplane. Yeah. And uh, so you've got to do it. You, you feel compelled. You can't, you've got to have that thrill, but you're also uh, on a fairly daily basis, you know, afraid of what you're facing. Um, so did that mean in the early days that you would be just terror-stricken before you went on stage? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even when I was playing full-time, I, I had uh, a lot of anxiety uh, where, you know, I don't want to be too graphic, but I gag. I, I would mm -hmm. be so nervous. Now, of course, you, the minute you hit your first note, it's gone. Yeah. And, and the show's on. But, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a real issue with me not not so much now mm -hmm. but uh uh when you're my age you know you get away with so much you know, <laughs> you know i was thinking about that this morning that uh you know little kids four and five years old they can do something in you know outrageous in sunday school and and oh isn't that, isn't that cute and then old guys uh can say something really off the wall in line at uh wegmans and uh, everybody thinks that <laughs> Pretty cute. Where, you know, 20 years ago, you'd get punched. Well, that's true. That's true. 
So you know, I I interviewed Art Linkletter one time for a television show I was doing wow. part of, and we were chatting about people who he knew personally in the entertainment business. Because I used to watch his show when I was a kid. Oh, me too. If we were home sick, we got to watch Art Linkletter's, you know, kids say the darndest yeah. things with our, you know, toast with sugar on it oh, and yeah. tea, you know, to kind of cure get everything. And he said that, um, and Red Skelton was one of my heroes from a comedic standpoint as a kid. Yeah. Still is. I love his version of the Star Spangled Banner. It's just absolutely wonderful. I try to play it every year. But... He says, do you know Red Skelton? I said, well, of course. He's, you know, one of my heroes. He goes, he would be deathly ill right until the moment he walked out on stage. He said, deathly ill as in throwing up in the garbage can. And yet, as soon as he walked out, just like you said, opened his mouth, he was fine. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is he always had about $30,000 in cash on his person at any given time. <laughs> do you? Oh, no, no. That, scare the he- that would scare me worse than playing. <laughs> 30 cents, maybe? I don't know. Oh, 30 cents. Yeah. So you're not as nervous in today's world. No. No. It's, uh, uh, I think when you're uh, younger, the stakes are so much higher. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're doing this for your living and you're playing in with four or five other guys, uh, three or four other guys, and um, their livelihoods depend on you too and doing your job the very best you can. And, and if, if part of that job is uh, a little uncomfortable, which the the front man part of it was for me, then you better figure out how to do it, um, you know, in such a way that you can be comfortable. You get because once you get a little energy from an audience, it's it's all over. I'll I'll, I'll climb the top of that tree. Yeah. Uh, if I ha- if I had to, but. It, you know, on a on a slow night, and there's not too many people there, and and um, uh, you know, you you got to kind of suck it up and and dig deeper for your inspiration in, in that moment. The other thing we did too, um, to we had mentors along the way that helped us uh, form a show, and um, we had uh, three hours of pretty seamless program. And although we would um, wouldn't change it up maybe but once a year or every six months something like that it really was uh no dead air we went on everything we went seamlessly from song to song had you know transition pieces um so that helped somebody like me who wasn't entirely comfortable with that role as front man to to be able to you know have a little bit more comfort up there. So how did you come about being a member of the band and also, as a follow-up to that, becoming the front man? Well, um, so uh, it started with, uh, as a, going back to my college time, uh, I was playing in a trio with two guys in my dorm, uh, Tim Dochev, who was played guitar and banjo, and then uh, Pete Trott, who was a bass player, and all of us sang, and I played guitar. So we had developed, you know, pretty—I don't know—hour and a half or so worth of music, and in in the uh, couple years that we played together in college, and we ended up getting uh, our my roommate was a bartender at this uh, restaurant out in the Spokane Valley, 
and um, he told his manager about us and um, so his manager came over to our house and we did an audition and he offered us a job uh, we played Friday and Saturday nights for at this place it was called the Culpepper Cattle Company uh, <clears throat> uh, for I don't know if it's still there but um, for several months or maybe a year and uh, I'll never forget we got paid minimum wage each one of us three dollars and thirty cents an hour um, but sadly we drank about four dollars an hour <laughs> <laughs> so not a not a real enterprising uh, we had a lot of fun but <laughs> well it worked for you at the time yeah yeah it, yeah, it sure did then um, our the bass player Pete went home to his family's farm in Montana to they have wheat farmers and um, to work for the summer and so the Culpeper Cattle Company, I guess, didn't like the idea of a, a duo or, or something happened mm -hmm. and we didn't continue on there. But Tim and I would go to open mics around town and, and uh, some we'd go to over, we were close to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, we'd go over there, they had open mics. And uh, we went to the one that we frequent pretty well, they loved having us because Tim played banjo and, and uh, it was a kind of a country group uh, so they got an opportunity to do this big um, uh, some big uh, benefit event in downtown Spokane they were playing this, this regular job at a bowling alley out in the valley and uh, so they said well if you guys sub for us it'll pay you $300 and um, you know you'll have a lot of fun so we we thought oh geez what just the two of us and they said well I, I think so I think can you put a band together and so um, uh, we ended up we knew some uh, uh, Tim knew guys from a, a band that were pretty well known and a local band in Spokane called Redwood they were kind of a rock and roll but they did a lot of funk and disco tunes and um, had a small horn section and uh, big sound and uh, played a lot of the places around Spokane and northern Idaho and um, so they had recently broken up and so Tim said well I'll call Dave the bass player and see if he uh, would be interested in doing this I I heard that they're trying to put something together and he's putting something together with Sean the guitar player and uh, sure enough he made the call and Dave came over the next day and uh, we jammed and he didn't know anything from the these bluegrass tunes that we, Tim and I were playing, uh, but he kind of liked it. And so we arranged a, a rehearsal with the four of us, or the five of us. It was me and Tim, the banjo player, Sean, the guitar player, Dave, the bass player, and a drummer friend of theirs. They were putting together a trio that was gonna be doing some Gordon Lightfoot and uh, John Denver stuff, kind of a uh, soft rock uh, pop kind of a thing. And then, so, we went and did this job. Uh, we knew eight songs really well and uh, two not too well. And then we repeated them four times. Uh, and the guy threatened not to pay us, but he ended up paying us. And, and uh, it, it, we went, went from there. We just uh, decided we liked the, the vibe and the groove. And, and, uh, so how did they choose you? To be the front guy 
I think everybody, you know how when when you ask for volunteers and everybody steps back, steps back right. and you're left with your mouth open, that, <laughs> that's kind of how that worked. It was, uh, uh, somebody's got to do it, so. So had you been the lead singer up until that point? Yeah, we, uh, in the trio, uh, we shared uh, singing vocals, but everybody sang in Salt Creek. Uh, Sean was a real good singer. Dave was a good singer. Uh, our drummer, Phil, didn't, but Tim was a real good singer and wrote some songs. And um, so I, I probably did, um, oh, maybe 60% of the lead vocals, maybe, maybe a little more. But I love singing harmony, so we did a lot of that. We, we worked just continuously on developing our harmonies. And, and uh, uh, so I love that. I took a, a jumped on a, every chance I could to do that. Well, you've always, when you have sung with me, and we do my, my version of the America tune, mm -hmm. which is not an America tune, um, and especially when R Richie's there as well, the two-part harmony behind me, I have to pinch myself to realize this is not America <laughs> because it comes out so oh, well. It's, it, it's when you get it right, there's nothing like it. Now, did you have to learn to be a harmony singer or you just hear it? I, I pretty much uh, hear it. Um, I sing with, in the radio, in the car with the radio and uh, I practice not only singing the third, but the fifth and um, I remember doing that, you know, when I was in high school, just singing with uh, something that I liked and singing in the car with it. So when it came time to craft a song and actually arrange vocals, those uh, things came pretty easily. And if, if they didn't, the, my partners really knew music. I don't know if they, if Sean read music, but he could always find the note, the third, the fifth on the guitar so that we could clean up any anything that wasn't sounding just just so. Well, I have heard or been told by numerous musicians who are not, they're like me, unless it's a smash you in the face, easy harmony, I don't know it, I have to really work at it. And those other folks who are like me say that if they have someone with them who plays piano, the piano person will pick out the part for, and you just basically memorize it. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, I think it almost goes without saying that if you play piano, you've been taught music, you know, from the, I mean, note for note. Uh, so you would be able to find that, that harmony. And uh, I had a, a piano player that played on my record, Bruce Munson, um, told us, as we were working on the record, he says, you know, a harmony or a chord really is only three notes. You change it and embellish it with other uh but three dominant chords or uh, notes in a chord, and uh, so when you have that that kind of a person around that that can do that, it's uh, you're right. It's so much easier. Otherwise, it's you just got to do it over and over and over yeah. again, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I I know that the Beatles um, many times were told you know practice your harmonies. And, I mean, they were doing, especially in the early years, they were just doing this stuff in front of noisy crowds, probably couldn't hear each other. So you almost have to then memorize your part and hope that you're just on pitch and then sing it the way you learned it. Right. But the um, Eagles, watching some of their hell freezes over and the one in Australia, 
and how they, before each performance, rehearse their vocals. Oh, yeah. And they're one of the tightest groups oh. ever, and yet they still rehearse their harmonies. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, uh, well, y you know, that kind of work ethic uh, is amazing. And I, I've seen those programs, too, and they were meticulous yeah. about it. And uh, not only the notes, but the dynamics and yeah. the, and the, the um, uh, timing and all of that, it goes into it. Because if you can have, a, uh, let's say a, a kind of a lackadaisical style of harmonizing like the Grateful Dead perhaps yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where they hit the notes but they one guy's you know in the two blocks away <laughs> yeah. and another guy's over here and they can't they're not really coming in at the same time nothing wrong with it I'm not because I, I love the dead but uh, uh, it's a different style yeah it's a different style yeah. that's right yeah so how would you classify Scott Barrett's style. If someone says, "What's your style?" Uh, well, I actually have a word. It's it's uh, swingabilly funk country rock grass. <laughs> uh, but you never say I, that. Don't when ask you've had me to spell it. <laughs> drinks, you know. <laughs> no, and uh, I can't spell it. So, but I, all of those things are. Uh, I have many interests in music. I don't haven't mastered any of them, uh, but. That's what I like. I like swing music. I love uh, bluegrass, country, jazz, I, uh, rock music. I love it all. And so I play what I love and um, hope people that listen to it, you know, are okay with it. Because <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to play. Yeah. Well, going back to your CD is one of the things I really love about it is that it isn't the same song over and over again, like so many, what I call so many singer-songwriter CDs. They've got a sound, and I'm kind of like that. They'll all pretty much sound the same. And I'm going to play one here for folks. Wilbur Washington Rag, which is, it's kind of like the humor song of the CD or the album. But before I play it, tell us a little bit about it. Well, uh, this it goes back to the trio days with uh, Tim and Pete. The, I think we call ourselves Overland Stage. Um, and we had a, f a dorm brother who was from Wilbur, Washington, a little tiny town. Uh, it's kind of east-central Washington. And uh, he went home for the summer uh, and had a job as a either, I think it was a park and recreations job. Uh, in his town, uh, so he I did a lot of stuff for the kids, and they had a Fourth of July um, uh, s celebration on. And so, on behalf of the town, he hired us, and so we packed up our I don't know whose car we went in, but we packed up and went to Wilbur, Washington, where this little tiny town, and and uh, and played this Fourth Fourth of July show uh, in a gazebo and in the central park of the town and nobody showed up except for these kids on the on stingray bicycles and uh but we did our you know two and a half hours or three hours whatever whatever was asked of us and um the song came from that well i'm going to play it so everybody can hear it and then we're going to chat a little bit about some specifics in the song when we finish
a row when I ran into a friend. He asked my name. I said it was Benny. Over five dollars said, better make it ten. Now you're in trouble doing it again. Well, I really love that girl a lot more than I should. I was half a hungry and wonder if she were. But the time passed quickly. There she just stood. Now we're all in trouble doing it again. Wasn't much else, so they decided to stay When it was all over the end of the day They were on trouble doing it again Again A nice ditty <laughs> And I'm it's so, I'm short sorry, It's like a minute, 30 seconds Yeah Now is that the way it sounded Back in Wilbur, Washington? Well, uh, actually, I think the song never really got played in Wilbur, Washington. It, 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 uh, I, I think it was one of the songs from 1974, so we probably played in Wilbur in 73, something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just kind of a reaction of a, a moment, a silly moment, uh, trying to do it in a silly way. I, had a, I originally wrote the song with a much more um, swing, bluesy lot, and... When I started playing it fast, uh, I just liked the, I thought it was silly and uh, kind of fit how I felt about it. The whole well, thing. and on that song, you play, well, I don't know if you play, but you make some sounds that are not normally made by singer-songwriters. Right. And one is the, what do you call it, a mouth drum? Uh, yeah, face bongos. Face bongos. Now, is that opening your mouth... Okay, and just slapping your teeth. Or yeah, and try to try to. I, I remember having a to take a few takes on that, and uh, my cheeks were <laughs> out, out to here, throbbing. You know, after uh, the tenth or eleventh take, but that that's what that is. Just uh, you know, uh, the kind of things we did as kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly to make make a sound, and then uh, got a, I think a kazoo part in there. You know, the kazoo. In more recent times, from what I've seen, the ukulele players use a kazoo, more so than guitar players. And it is a, because I used to use it back in the 70s. Yeah. And it's really a neat, I can't really call it percussion, but it is sort of. Yeah. And it just kind of breaks the tension, sort of. I think uh, uh, you bring up an interesting point. It's uh, kazoo using that. It's... Uh, very whimsical, yeah. and and I think, as far as stringed instruments, if you're going to say, uh, what's the most whimsical string instrument there is? Uh, it might be the ukulele. Yeah. Uh, so they do really have bright sounds that would meld well together. I yeah. think. Uh, so that's an interesting observation you have. Well, and it's a heck of a lot easier to play or learn to play than a harmonica. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have never been able to master that, and I know that you play harmonica a little bit. Uh, no. No? No. Not a, I have one. Uh, <laughs> I bought one, uh, and I've never really been able to get anything out of it. I don't see how, and I, well, I, I have not taken the time to learn how to do it correctly. I did get as far as buying the rack. Oh, okay. And I still have the rack. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a harmonica on it. You might be able to put a kazoo on it. Well, this one, no. This one, it was a, no. I, the reason I purchased it was kind of a different style. I just thought it looked cool. Oh, yeah. 
but the um, but I can play kazoo. I, I should bring that back. I haven't. Oh, it's it's very entertaining. I think people love that. You well, know. especially singing "Happy Birthday" just because yeah. that's such a short song, and just do a, a verse of kazoo. That'd be fine. Yeah, I use kazoo quite a bit when uh, oh I was when I lived in El- in Ellicott City. I had some regular jobs that I played and. Uh, you get so tired of not being able to just playing through uh, uh, a solo. Uh, you want to do something. And so I would clip a kazoo to a, another microphone stand and blow through that. And then I get tired of doing that and <laughs> started doing lip trumpet and whatever you, you, know, whatever you can to, to fill, fill in. Well, I find in my, my lip, lip trumpet comes out more like a lip trombone slash saxophone it's not slash easy. it's not easy not easy to do it, it is not and of course victoria victoria vox is probably oh, she's the, amazing she's the i mean I, I saw her performance on johnny carson and she does that and whoever the band leader was at that time i don't think it was doc severinson i think it was the the, the more recent fellow was in awe oh, yeah. of that because if you're not looking at her you're thinking I didn't see a trumpet. Yeah. Oh, no, it's spot on. Amazing. And, you know, when I do it, I have to make sure there's no one within 15 feet of <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not a, a, a instrument of choice during a pandemic. <laughs> 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 there's a lot of aerosol coming out on, on one of those deals. Well, speaking of the pandemic, what did Scott Barrett do during the year and a half or year and four months of not being able to play out? Yeah, not not. Uh, um, I did get together with uh, some musicians, principally uh, Josh Bayer, and craft because we knew things were going to change, and we were going to maybe when warmer weather settled in, it looked like last year about this time that that things might open up outside, and um, we were fortunate enough to, you know, our friends look out for us and give us a job, and and. Uh, so that we had time in the winter to do that, but uh, he's uh, for those that don't know Josh, he's a uh, an educator. He he um, teaches uh, improv improvisational jazz, guitar, bass at American University, and uh, runs the jazz department. So he's really busy in the winter, uh, and not I mean even more so during this pandemic where he's doing all this by Zoom, uh, conducting class and, and uh, band rehearsals and stuff like that by Zoom. So quite a, you know, I'm proud to know the guy. He's an amazing player and, a, and a, a, a really good educator. And those are the guys that I've, I've known a lot of uh, teacher musicians and, and a lot of uh, as you do, uh, uh, some of the guys that came, players that came out of the uh, U.S. Army, and mm-hmm. um, those, they're all about service. So uh, they're, they're, they're givers. They, uh, that's one of the things that you, you find out pretty quickly with, uh, when you associate it with those, those folks, is that they're really all about uh, teaching and spreading the joy and the knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, now, do you find it? And I have difficulty accepting the invitation if someone is a really good musician. Say, come on, play with us, because I'm not a technical musician, 
and I I am very nervous about my my guitar chops, which people sometimes have been guilty of calling me a smooth guitar player. Well, maybe I am, but I really technically don't know a whole lot about what I'm doing. So when someone gets up and says, "Oh, we're going to do a 12-bar blues in A," yeah. so yeah, you know, I go, "Oh, wait a minute, okay, that means I'm oh, it's okay, I got to watch for a minute." Yeah, you know. So do you find it is helpful to perform with people who are quote better than you are? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, that's kind of been my good fortune uh, going way back to when I was playing in that little trio in college and all up and through now is that I've always been able to play with people that were way better than me. Mm -hmm. So not only did I learn and was able to grow, but I got to do a lot more things because they were there. Yeah. Uh, we were a lot more successful. And uh, it's, I, I can't think of one instance. I mean, every association I've had, uh, it was a, a better guitar player, better bass player, better songwriter, a better this, whatever it was. It was every uh, opportunity I've had, I've, I've really been on the, uh, you know, on the, been lucky to have that happen. Well, one person, uh, and, and we've, both you and I know many gifted musicians. We've been very fortunate to perform with them in ensembles for like fame shows, things like that. Uh, Richie Ricker always comes to mind. Um, I, I know three or four really good bass players. Uh, Richie is just, if everybody else is way above my talent, Richie is in the stratosphere somewhere. Yeah. And the very first time he said, do you mind if I sit in with you? I was terror stricken. And then after like halfway through the first song, I had to force myself to remember that I'm supposed to be playing guitar because I was listening to him. Yeah. He, he already knew how to play the four or five songs that he listened to you before he, he jumped in. He already knew it. Well, that's just it. And he very unassuming. Barry, Barry's like that, too. Barry is like Barry that. Barry is uh, instant. And a lot of those guys that, you know, were in bands, uh, you know, most all their life have had to do that. And they have enough knowledge of um, their instrument and key structure and that type of thing. Also, how to react, you know, there are little nuances of uh, stops and, and uh, you know, different kind of uh, breaks in a song that they just watch what's going around them. They're mm -hmm. uber aware of what's, what's happening. I've, because uh, I played with both of them, and they both have that. They do, and Barry is much, well, Richie's humble, but he has that little impish grin while he's playing, and it's almost like once in a while he'll kind of look over at you, you know, did I, did you like that little thing? Yeah. And Barry is equally, or more so, unassuming. Yeah. And he'll say, well, I haven't played with you for a while, but I, I think I can muddle through it. And, of course, he just. Oh, yeah. You know, and what I've learned from both of them and other people is I say, sorry about that curveball in the middle of that song that you'd never heard before. I said, what do you do in that say, case? He says, I just mute the string. Oh. So it yeah. comes up click or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I went, ah. Oh. Sure. That's what we do when we, we forgot the chords. Right. You just pull your fingers out and you yeah. get that. Chicka, chicka, chicka. <laughs> it works. For sure. So guitar-wise, how have you, 
Since I've known you, you've had, I think, the two guitars. You had the electric for a while. I'm not sure you even still have it. Yeah, I have it, but uh, I don't use it. Um, I bought it. I was in a band back from, like, 2014 to 17, uh, and it was pretty much rock and roll. We did some of the swing tunes also, but um, it was advised to me to get an electric guitar, and, and because of the kind of music, uh, a hollow body guitar with F-holes would probably... So I went to a music store in Catonsville, well-known music store, and uh, spent a couple hours, picked something out and an amp to go with it, but never really got the feel for it that you do up from an acoustic, mm -hmm. how the strings bounce, you know, the feel, the, the things you can do with rhythms that uh, really you have to be play much more subtly on electric guitar. And... Um, I'm anything but subtle. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I agree with you because I have difficulty with an electric for those reasons. It's like, whoa. Yeah. It reacts. Oh, and you can press, uh, you know, real hard, which I tend to do. I tend to overpress when I'm playing a chord, and you'll sharp. Yeah. You'll sharp uh, your strings, and you don't know why that is oh i got to tune it again well it's no it's it's your playing it's yeah. the playing that's i bought on. a uh, hagstrom archtop a little smaller body a friend of mine had had been waiting for over a year to, on an order for a gibson 335 and he finally got and i said we're rich I'm sure I can find you something. And I found the Hagstrom, and they're very inexpensive. They're made overseas now. And Hagstrom was a big name when I was a kid. Mm. I always loved the way it looked on the logo. And he wanted a red one, because that's the color, that all the cool, yeah. you know. And this fellow in Missouri or someplace had these outrageous prices. And he had a red one. So I said, I'm going to order a red one. I'll just try it, and then I'll send it to Rich. See if he likes it. If he doesn't, I'll keep it. All they had was white. They didn't have the red. Oh. I thought, well, I'll get the white. And Rich goes, I don't want a white one. And I tried it for a while, and it, just like you say, it's just not it's me. It's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful instrument. I love the looks of my guitar, and I probably should hang it on the wall, but uh, <laughs> I just uh, maybe don't have the patience to get the sound I want out of it. Yeah. Because uh, I, I could definitely use it. It would be appropriate for some things that I do, but I've got my... My Takamini that, you know, been with me since 1974. So. I was going to ask you how long you've had that guitar. Yeah, it was, I uh, was doing, a, I think it was, might have been over there uh, at the uh, first. Uh, the first Saturday? Saturday. I was playing and this guy's looking at, looking at my hands and I'm playing. And, and then when I took a break, he comes up to me, he goes, uh, is that, uh, what, how old is that Takamini? I said, it's, 1974 and he goes ah lawsuit guitar and I, I said what he said yeah he said uh, and he told me the whole story and yeah. I of course I verified it. I went and looked it up on Wikipedia which you know is, is always true so uh, uh, but he, the, the um, what happened was uh, Takamini made this dreadnought style guitar it looks exactly like a D18 mm -hmm. Martin D18 um, and the issue wasn't the dreadnought style or anything other than the headstock. The, heads, the headstock was a dead-on copy of a Martin D18, their headstock. And so uh, that, they were sent a cease and, dis, cease and desist letter by Martin 
over to Takamini. They complied. They were, I think, guitars like that were sort of made by the number of orders they had for it. So they, they could just stop right. and then recreate something that was a little bit uh, uh, less, uh, would put them in less legal jeopardy. Sure. But uh, so I looked it up and see how much, God, a lawsuit guitar, how much could that be worth? Well, it's, I think I saw uh, an eBay price for one sold a few years ago for $1,500. But You've gotten your $1,500. I have. I've gotten more than it's priceless. Now, how much work have you had to do on that guitar over the years? Not much. Really? I, no, in fact, uh, so I've had it, God, it'll be almost 50 years. I, I had fret work done while I was in the band. I had new frets put on. I had new machine heads went first. So I probably had machine heads put on uh, 77 or something like that. And then uh, I used to use a Barkus Berry pickup. I, I remember those. Remember those? Yep. yep. And it would, of course it was, they would stick it on with a piece of Wrigley's chewing gum on the inside, <laughs> of, on the inside of your guitar. Now it kept coming off. And you know, don't know why you can't hear yourself. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> but uh, other than that, I I had a pickup. Uh, Saw Creek had a reunion, twentieth year reunion in nineteen ninety six. So I didn't want to deal with you know the, the chewing gum issue. So I went and had a, a real nice pick, pickup put in it. I don't know what the brand is, but you've heard my you you you've, yeah. you've uh, it's a red hot little signal that it puts out. I don't need a preamp or anything, and uh, and then I had uh, Barry uh, knows a luthier down in uh, Percival. Yeah, um, fair built guitars. Yeah, yep, Mar Marty, uh, and so I needed uh, I was had some fret problems and. Uh, neck issues. Uh, uh, I'm scared to death of trying to turn that, you know, neck around. But uh, so he took a road trip with me down there, and a few days later, I, it was good as new, and that's it. Yeah. And then you turned me on to Elixir strings, and that's all I put on anymore. You know, it's interesting you say that because, as as you know, in the the Fame monthly newsletter, the Sound Post. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for gear to review, and last month I did a review on the new D'Addario MS, is it MS? XS strings. They had a coated string for years, but what it was is they would coat the wire before they wound it, oh. which meant the ridges are still there, which would still collect the dirt. Whereas elixirs, they, they wind the string, then they put and the coating on, so it kind of protects yeah, the... Yeah. Anyway, so they... It must be, and I did learn from making music that D'Addario made Elixir strings for the longest time until Elixir got big enough they could start their own factory. Wow. So they probably had some sort of a licensing agreement for a period of time, and it must have expired, or Elixir said, no, you can now use that application. So this, these XS strings now in a nice white package are coded very much like are the nanowebs that, that you and yeah, I use. Yeah, yeah, right. And I put them on a one of my avians. Unfortunately, making music only had light gauge, and I don't play light gauge. I put them on anyway. Um, and I have to admit, they're actually pretty good. I did purchase a medium set. Okay. And they sound good. I think I still like the elixirs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I swear by them. I, I, for me, I'm not much for, for experimenting. I, you know, I've owned own one guitar for... 45 years yeah. and, and uh but that was a uh, 
a game changer for me was those elixirs. They're softer on the hands. Yep. When you don't play all the time and, and you've got to redevelop calluses for a gig that you might have two or three weeks down the road, um, they're, they're so forgiving yeah. to your, your, your hands and uh, great tone. Yeah. Now, how and long does a set last for you? Well, <laughs> during a pandemic, I think I, I think I, set I have on is probably from 2017. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm teasing. It's, well, no, I, I got them in January. That's <laughs> no, because I just put a set of. What did I? What did I put on this? I have an old, inexpensive Martin. DXK2 or DKX2. It's it's the it's the countertop material oh. guitar. It looks like Kowood. Because it's yeah. just printed on there. And I had had those elixirs on that guitar for probably 12 years. Wow. And it was getting a little thuddy. Still stayed in tune. And I replaced the strings with elixirs. And boy, did that guitar come alive. Whoa. <laughs> so they only last so long, yeah. but they will last a yeah, long time. A long time. time. Yeah. A long time. No, and you know, it's funny. And you may hear that from other people when they ask you what kind of string you use to say elixirs. Ah, they're too expensive. Well, what do you use? regular you know the dario or the whatever how often do you have to buy a set well i don't know every couple months what do you pay for them seven bucks you could buy the 15 dollar set of elixirs and keep them for a year or two maybe yeah, yeah. oh yeah without a doubt but that's they th all they're thinking is you know right i played term. martin marquis i use martin marquis medium gauge yep. uh for 30 years i guess well back in the 1970s rich and i used to buy those by the box oh yeah because we would play seven nights a week. In the summertime, we'd play, you know, probably seven to one or eight to one, hot, sweaty. Mm -hmm. A lot of the bars didn't have good air conditioning. And so those strings were just, you had to change the strings every day. And then when we played later in the Boston area, we would do a happy hour from four until seven, and then the same place, eight until one. Wow. We would have to change the strings sometimes in between the two sets. Because they were, they were great strings, but boy, they just didn't last. Yeah. yeah. I would have died for elixirs back then. Yeah. Now, did the uh, uh, coastal air have anything to do with how... You know, it may have. I, I, yeah, we I didn't, didn't think of it. Yeah. You know, you the did. worst thing was opening the guitar case the next morning because smoking was in everything. Yeah. And having that smell just come out of that <laughs> guitar case and be, oh, my God. And you'd have to hang your clothes outside, you know. Oh yeah, that that was uh, opening your guitar after a, after a gig was always a uh, back then. Uh, ours usually smelled like peppermint schnapps. <laughs> <laughs> now so, that brings up a question: Do you miss playing kind of the bar circuit? Uh, no, not at this point. I I kind of swore off late night. I think the last time I played, well, the the band I was in back in. Uh, 14 to 17, uh, 2014 to 2017, uh, we had a regular job every couple of months uh, where we had to play till midnight. And that was rough because, you know, it was rough on the body. And um, one guy had to drive, uh, our ba bass player had to drive all the way to Laurel. And uh, everybody else was pretty local. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, yeah, I, I would if I got offered. I mean, I... I I'm like you and everybody else. We just want to play. Yeah. And so if I got opportunity, I would, I would do that. And um, but I don't actively seek that kind of a. I like the atmosphere we have now: a coffee house, a winery, where you know people aren't 
you know, it, it used to be one of the things that club owner liked about our band was the energy we had because it made people drink. Yeah. And so I'm not really proud of that, but we, as a part of uh, our goal was to, you know, is make that party last until we stopped. And um, so, you know, that's not something I have a, a, as a goal anymore. Uh, but it is awfully nice, though, to play a three-hour gig and be home in time to watch the favorite TV show or to have dinner with my wife. Yes. Do you know, it really, it, it really is. Um, even the evening open mics, as much as I enjoy doing them, yeah. No, that's okay. Yeah, I like getting home early. You're, you'd still be out until 10, 10.30. Oh, easily. Yeah. 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 That, I think the last regular job that I had, uh, now that I think of it, where it, it went till 10, I think I played from 7 to 10, was up, up at Braddock Heights. Yes. Uh, in fact, you came and played once with me up there. That was a, It was not a hard thing. You're still home by 11.30 or so. Right. But, you, you know, when you're... Uh, like me in your late forties, <laughs> it, it can uh, wait till you're in your fifties, like I am. Oh you know? man, I, uh, I'm not, I don't I won't live that long. <laughs> so, what does the future hold for Scott Barrett musically? What's your goal, if you have one? Well, I would say I I don't have any uh, real ambition to do any more recording. Uh, although um, I've always had a I've always wanted to do a Christmas record, and I think I would love to try to do something like that. They, um, there's a, a lot of do-it-yourself um, software and that kind of thing. I don't know anything about, but might uh, be an opportunity to, to do something like that. Um, I A highlight for me for the last 10 years or so was being involved in those theater shows with fame. So... Having been away from that for a couple of years, uh, they can be very stressful when you're putting them together yeah. and learning the music. But I would love to do another one of those. So if the opportunity presented itself, I, I would. Um, you always got to have a guy that says, you know, that tries to keep the room focused. You know, yeah. I, those all those shows were really developed by the performers, but. Um, you have to try to make the most out of rehearsal time you have. And so somebody's got to say, hey, put the cat down, put it down. <laughs> so so you were actually the producer, in a way, of many of those shows. I probably was. And, and, and you know, you've got uh, um, scheduling kind of responsibilities, trying to get the most out of your rehearsal time. So a lot of small groups, as you know, we... We uh, did some small group stuff for uh, Four Strong Winds, yep. and uh, which, by the way, was a shock to me. How I mean, it wasn't that it turned out to be a great show, but I didn't think we'd sell a ticket. Yeah, and it was the best, evidently the best ticket sales we've ever had, and the th enthusiasm. I know we had people that had connections to Canada in that audience. Oh no, we did, and I was pleasantly surprised too. Because I was concerned, you know, that we'd have more performers on stage than we'd have people in the audience. But it was, for the most part, it wasn't a full house, but it was close. I, I think you could call it a pretty yeah. full house. I want to say, I don't, I don't remember what the actual count of ticket sales, but I know it was the highest. Yeah. 
But you're absolutely right. That was a fun show to do. Yeah. It really was. The energy level on that, and of course the makeup of the different artists doing the different, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. And I had so much fun. What was it? What's the, the uh, if I had a million dollars? Oh, yeah. That and was, I got to play the ukulele yeah, in the yeah, beginning. Yeah. It was just so much fun. Yeah, that was, that was a, it all turned out that the, the songs were the right songs to yes. select. We had the right people. Uh, when you add uh, Cecilia Grace to, yes. the, to the mix, and they know all the new Canadian artists from, you know, and uh, surrounded by, I mean, they're diamonds surrounded by uh, all these old grandpa and grandmas. And, yeah, the grandkids uh, did a great job <laughs> on that show. The grandkids did a great job. <laughs> yeah, it was a great show. Well, Scott, this has been fun for me. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're Thank welcome. you very much. The, uh, and we'll remind folks who get to listen to this before this weekend, this weekend being June 12th and 13th, which is also the first Festival of the Arts in a much more reduced way than other years. No music there this year. But Scott is kicking off the Sunday Brunch Concert Series here at the Shabro Stage. Free beer. Free beer, absolutely. <laughs> but for those of you who want to come out, if you haven't heard Scott, you need to come out because he's just a lot of fun, a true entertainer. It is a great setting. And then also, maybe go and see he and Josh and Barry Bryant at Elk Run the afternoon before. Make it a, a big Scott Barrett weekend. That'll be a whole lot of fun. And we're going to end the show, Scott, with a song off your CD called On My Way. Can you tell us a little bit about that song? Yeah, it's uh, a newer song. It was, uh, uh, since I did finish the record in 2009, it's probably 2008. It actually, there there is a, uh, a real f place that th the inspiration came from. It's about my wife and I, our, our relationship and how we met and how long it took me to have the courage to speak to her. But it, it, it the mo this song started right at, as you're crossing the Potomac from Maryland into Virginia in the Harpers Ferry region. And uh, it was, there's some images uh, in the first set of lyrics that, that talk about that, that feeling of the power of the river and the power that you have when you love somebody. And, uh, and, and it just kind of wrote itself. I'm not sure I was really anything more than a conduit of something. Well, you were a good conduit because <laughs> here's the song. Thank you. 
Me Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by me, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me, at the Wispy Mob Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland, or sometimes, like today, on location. If you're enjoying the series, please tell friends, family, co-workers, anybody you can about it. And uh, we'd love to have you check in later for a future show. And I again want to thank Scott Barrett for, for being on the show today. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.